Hello, my name is John Malloy, director of the Center for Public Ethics at Martin Luther University College, based in Waterloo, Ontario, Canada. Welcome to The Moment. In this series, we try to reimagine our post-pandemic life together after our COVID-19 life apart. You're listening to our special series on polarization, where we ask some of Canada's leading thinkers why we're entering our post-COVID world so divided and can faith play a role in bringing us together. Today we are in conversation with Fanis Juma, founder and lead practitioner with the African Community Wellness Initiative, racial justice educator and founder of Black Lives Matter Waterloo Region. Fanis is also an adjunct faculty member here at Martin Luther University College. Fanis, welcome to the moment. Thank you so much, John. I'm happy to be here. Well, Fanis, as you know, the theme of this podcast series is political polarization in Canada. The fact that not only are there extreme views out there, but even those holding the middle ground appear to be more hostile to their political competitors. Now, the subject of racial justice is an issue that appears to be dividing Canadians. Some say that systemic racism has divided our society along racial lines. Others say that arguments over the extent to which Canada is home to systemic racism as a source of division, while others point to our inability to reach a consensus on a path forward as a source of polarization. I wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about your work in this area and what the term polarization means to you. Thank you so much, John. Yeah, I'd, I'm happy to be part of this conversation. And, and those are some really key questions. Around my work, um, I do like to start by locating myself um, as a racial justice practitioner. And I always recognize that um, the, the conversation or my work takes place on stolen lands, which are part of an ongoing history of colonization and violence. And that Kitchener-Waterloo, where I practice, is uh, the traditional territory of the Haudenosaunee, the Anishinaabe, and the neutral people. Um, and as far as my own locations, I'm um, descendant from the Luo people and the Luya people of uh, East Africa in the territory known as Kenya. And um, out of these locations is, where, is how I identify myself as a, uh, an anti-racist uh, practitioner. Um, I do think as you identified that racial justice seems to is coming up as a core um, sort of focus and uh, a greater awareness around issues of race um, and systemic racism. And that within that, there, there is a visibilization of, of polarized views that we have seen growing increasingly in the last few years. Um, in terms of my own, how I, I, I view or how I would assess this sort of polarization um, and the ways that we're relating to each other politically in Canada, um, I would say that I'm not even sure that polarization is a new word as, as it relates to, to, to the phenomena, because I don't think um, there's a growing distancing. I think that there was already a distancing, but the the conditions right now are such that more of the voices of those who would not have usually been part of the public discourse in a significant way are being um, are, are being heard. So voices are being heard that it, it, that 
previously were excluded from public discourses, and that is making it visible. Um, the diverse, the different um, lived experiences and the different material interests for the people who are um, sharing this space. Can I, I mean, when we, I, I keep saying this on all the, on, on all the podcasts and when we plan this show uh, or this series of shows, we never thought that there would be a, a group of truckers that would take over Parliament Hill. Uh, so, you know, in a, in a, in a sense, our, our timing was, was, you know, we hit on a very topical uh, a subject and many people, when they think about polarization, think of that, think of the, the truckers convoy, think of, of, of these extreme situations. But do you see polarization in our society um, in a less visible way? Do you see our society divided in, in ways that are not sort of front, front, front page of the newspaper or the lead item on, on uh, the evening news? Well, they're becoming more visible, um, but I do think that there are still um, some disruptions or, um, you know, it concerns, I guess I'll put it that way. There's concerns or uh, people feelings of dissatisfaction that are, are not always, it takes quite a bit of action and activism to bring them to the forefront. Um, I think, you know, you referenced the truckers convoy earlier this year. Um, and I think this was a situation where the political climate was beginning to reflect people, the dominant voices, historically dominant voices in Canadian society. Um, some of them were finding that uh, political establishments are not reflecting their interests in the ways that historically has happened um, and, and to the extent that it has happened historically. And so that was new because there's never really been a reason for that kind of mobilization in the past for the demographics that we were seeing to be feel a sense of wanting to be politically act active in a, in a protest type of way. Um, so I think that's it, it, it is just seeing a little bit of that shift of making room um, for for a diversification of views in Canadian politics and for and 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 that that is something that is historic. Well, that actually it, it leads me right into my next question. Um, there, there's a, a premise to the way we've put together this this series that the polarization is a bad thing, that it's it's dangerous for Canada, and many people hold that view. But if one side is truly right, if, as you suggest, this is about uh, individuals and groups getting a, a voice that haven't had a voice in the past, uh, challenging the political establishment, challenging the systems and structures, um, then is this not just a byproduct? Is polarization not just a byproduct of some people finally getting heard that deserve to be heard? Um, if if those fighting in the case of the context of this discussion for racial justice are right, and those holding uh, uh, differing views are wrong, should we be worried about polarization? Is this just really you know the 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 apple cart's getting a bit upset uh, uh, to use an old expression, and 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 we shouldn't worry about it. Well, I think it depends again. And I think, you know, the term polarization is one way of saying, you know, people are separated or divided. I think we can also talk about conflict 
Um, and and if we think about it in that frame, I've heard it said and uh, that conflict is what happens when different value systems come into contact with each other. Um, so I think that what whether we should be concerned about this or not is, as we know, that conflict is not necessarily a bad thing, but the tools that we use to engage can be devastating historically, you know, or um, can lead to growth and birth something new, even through the struggle. It'll, it'll never feel good. But I think what we're what the piece that we need to be concerned about is that there might be a significant and powerful um, demographic who have not ha- had to develop um, tools for engagement when uh, the powers no longer reflect um, their values are not privileged. And unfortunately, historically, um, the loss of that privilege has aligned with what we could be concerned about, which is violence um, as a result of conflicting views. So I do think we need to pay attention to the ways in which the to protecting those who are historically uh, targeted when these kinds of uh, different values come into contact with each other and ensuring the safety of communities. Well, can I ask, uh, uh, just to build on that, ask a, even a more, a more direct question. Are you ever frustrated with some of the work you do when the response is, oh, come on, we, we, we all need to get along. You know, we need to, we need to sort of tone down the rhetoric. We need to find a compromise. We need to find, and do you ever see that as a way of basically saying, uh, you know, go away. <laughs> you're, 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 you're challenging us in ways that we don't like. You're making us uncomfortable. So we're going to go into this, uh, you know, we all need to get along. We all need to, to, to have more dialogue and get together as opposed to, uh, uh, dealing with 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 what's brought forward, I just I'm sure you've, you you've had some 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 pretty pretty big frustrations in some of the work you've been doing. Well, personally, yes, and also I think just over the years that's something that um, practitioners in my field do face, but also as a tradition uh, in the racial in the black led racial justice tradition, it's just well documented the different um, responses. On one hand, you can have by um, so in the context of race, it would be uh, the white privileged communities is where is the context in which we've, we've struggled for racial justice. Uh, on one hand, you can have a reaction that's directly violent, whether it's through words or actions or symbolism. We saw some of those embedded in the convoy. Or on the other hand, you can have more like a lack of understanding and a pacifying that that also takes us back. And um, so some of our, in, within our tradition, um, some leaders like uh, Martin Luther King spoke quite well to that uh, about how that that these are equal frustrations and actually spent quite a lot of time on those who he called his, the moderate friends uh, who and even within the faith community um, who refused and were unable to understand his plight and held both of those responses in equal as as equally um, threatening, damaging, and harmful. Um, to the progress of, of of liberation work, and do you see the 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 sort of this problem of moderate friends in in Canada or here in our community or in Ontario? I mean, I know your your focus has been Waterloo Region, but you're obviously aware of the whole country. I would say that would be the dominant profile. I think moderation and calmness. There's a part of it that's just part that is um, 
been part of that national identity that is um, particularly for Canadians of European descent. I think um, sometimes I know for me as an immigrant, one of the things we're sort of inducted into into the culture is that this is a calm and friendly and happy place, right? So um, not all of that is bad. Every place has its personality. Some cultures are loud and <laughs> et cetera. But that can definitely be used as a tool um, where the, the moderate um, kind of violent silence silencing practices are, have been the dominant tool. But what we are seeing is that as the movement grows for liberation, some of these other direct forms of, for example, white supremacist expressions of violence, et cetera, that we would um, have seen in certain times of history or certain parts of like the United States are becoming more prevalent. So I think it's both, um, but Canadians have not recognized necessarily the moderate um, kind of fence-sitting approach, let's get peace, like an unjust peace kind of um, priority as a form of a historic form of white supremacist violence. And what, uh, I'm just, I'm, you know, curious about some of the specific work you've done. I mean, how, how do you get that message across that, uh, you know, if you're not, um, well, if you're if you're sort of standing by, or if you're just saying, "Oh, come on now, we you know we need to find a middle ground. We need to, uh, uh, you know, but everybody needs to calm down." That sort of that sort of approach. How do you how do you, I guess, engage with 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 individuals like that? I mean, it's it's two different problems, as you say, and there's there, there's another serious side in terms of people who are you know calling for violence or or you know, out and out racist, that sort of thing. But this, this kind of moderate group, how do you, how do you engage with them? Well, one of the key tools that have been developed by the tradition that I, I'm a part of as a practitioner have been, um, the black intellectual movement, for example, um, and, and the use of, um, which is, there's something also problematic of having to sort of prove our lived experience but that's where that that's where we've had the most um, the most progress when coming up against what we we'll call denialism. It's no different than Holocaust denialism to be a systemic racism denier. Um, so one of the most powerful tools for that is uh, the collection of desegregated data, and that's why you see this pushback on the theories that give rise to you can measure lived experiences. So it doesn't become about I'm just gonna have a discussion with you until I. Um, uh, persuasion, as you will, which can also be an element, like a privileged form of politics. Um, let's let's only focus on persuading each other. But there can be also an element of let's uh, a social scientist, like we can measure the lived experiences of people and the way systems operate, and then develop policies and practices, um, which will be equity policies and practices. So, uh, for example, as an so I'm also an equity practitioner and an equity based researcher. And uh, those are the tools that we depend upon to engage in systems and to engage in, in, in politics in terms of educating the public around uh, different lived experiences. Unfortunately, those are under attack as well because there's been an awakening to how powerful our intellectual movements are across uh, the social side, for, not just for race, but for gender. That's how women were able to vote, begin to vote and, and access workplace meaningfully for disability studies. Um, these uh, critical social theories are, are used both on class, race, 
gender, et cetera, all these issues that have helped make society a more equitable place. But there is a centering of them as they're applied to race right now, which is an attempt at, uh, for, the, for the racial justice struggle in the black community, um, basically being anti-black literacy because the, the black intellectual scholars, um, this has been an area of leadership for us to bring critical theories to bear upon race, racial experiences that don't just benefit us, but also others. So this is really triggering what goes back to the plantation where there was great violence. The first thing that would always be attacked was that enslaved Africans were not allowed to read or write. Um, and this is where I think the allyship of the academy has a significant role to play. We know in all histories of genocide that scholarship is one of the first um, pieces to be to be directed at because it's a powerful tool. It's not the only tool. Uh, we use faith, spirituality, art. You know, um, there's been there are many tools of resilience, but uh, I'm definitely strong in that tradition, and I think it's an important tradition to continue to support. Although that, I mean, it, it, what you raise kind of brings, I, I don't think it creates a circular discussion, but it brings us full circle because we have we have a society where there are certain voices, as you've just pointed out, who um, are, are bringing the, the, the evidence to the table, are doing data gathering. Then you have a side that's that's attacking that process, attacking the 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 data or the way in which it's collected. Presumably that, you know, is, is a big part of this polarization discussion that we can't even even agree on the facts of the situation or how we collect the facts and that sort of thing. And, you know, I'm putting a lot on your shoulders asking this question, but how, how do we bridge that divide or do we bridge that divide? To go back to my earlier question, is, the, is, is it a matter of um, one's, you know, I'll put it in stark terms, one side's right, one side's wrong, you know, and if, if, if it's going to be a... Uh, 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 at the end of the day, one side's going to win. We, we we hope it's it's uh, uh, you know the side that you're representing versus the, like how do you, how do you talk about this or how do we, how do we deal with it? Because you know certainly within the academy, I mean there's 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 been libraries of books written about this about about the huge divisions and you know different academics uh, attacking each other and they won't talk to each other. So is there a way to to bridge it? No, I don't think there is a way to bridge it, um, because when we are talking on matters related to uh, human rights and dignity, freedom, uh, including the freedom to for life, um, we don't we don't actually use terms like division or um, polarization. Um, there's a place for unity, but not on matters uh, related uh, to people's survival. So we, that's why we identify this as a struggle. Um, it's a struggle and, and, and that assumes that there's something you're struggling up against. So what has happened is that um, the, the struggle was invisibilized. People were still dying. There was still incredible conflict, right? When, uh, when genocide is happening, you know, we hear about the discoveries um, of indigenous children uh, we have our own documented histories on this land um, through uh, through systemic racism, which we don't have time to unpack all the various areas that people have been suffering. So, for example, I started this work when I arrived in the region in 2010 um, as a, a young, uh, you know, early 20s um, to mid 20s. This is when I really started to do this work. And I was doing it with as much urgency and was, I, I think, my first um, launched into this work when I, um, bearing witness to the death of a, a Sudanese uh, a youth 
and and that shocked me even you know uh, to see that that death was happening right here in front of me with the demographic that I was seeking to to support so this has been this has been a, a struggle a, a a battle a war whatever you want to call it and so what's happening right now is that the 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 engagement and the awareness by the larger public is a result of the fight that we've been putting in to bring it to this point and but what but we can, but the response that we will get is not a, a you know something that we decide uh, you, as they say the tools of of liberation are not we don't decide that we in terms of like what it's going to take um, so we, we we hope for the best responses. We want this work to be embraced, but we very much know historically that it hasn't depended on. Um, it sometimes starts with a few, and 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 it doesn't always. Everybody's not always on board when we move this forward. But what we do need is the the uh, communities of faith, communities of conscience, where we do have shared values around these core human values. Um, to be able to work together and create safe as safe spaces as we can in this piece, but we need to be real about the fact that the 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 counter movements are not going to necessarily disappear, and um, and that we can't we can't make it. So there's a bit of almost denialism in hoping that we could just all be in peace about this. And that I guess leads to to the question of you know what are the solutions we talked through, I, I, you know, I guess it's one of those things. If you and I had all the solutions, we'd be, uh, I don't know, writing best-selling books. And, uh, but w- you know, when I think of it from a, 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 a I, I say that to not put all this pressure on you, that you have to come up with all the solutions, and everything, but I think of someone in a political leadership role. Um, there's, there's, uh, you know, the, the, the issues that you've raised, there's the individuals who are, are, are concerned about it, both those with lived experience and allies. There's also, you know, you've used the term counter movements with an S, um, you know, everything from, you know, very, you know, movements and groups that I think, I think society would find unbelievably offensive in the sense that they are, they are, they are racist movements through to those who, who have different perspectives, who, you know, are, are, will try to undermine the theories that you're putting forward, the, uh, the data that you're putting forward, those who are, who are, who are more passive or sitting on the fence, those who are calling for moderation. How does a political leader um, deal with this, deal with these divisions in our society? And I think race is a, is a touch point, which really can, uh, you know, cause some strong emotions. So how does a political leader uh, uh, deal with this, in your opinion, in, in a way that, that is, you know, is helpful in a sense to those uh, uh, with lived experience who are trying to have a greater voice and, and role, but also brings in the reality of all these different voices? Sorry, that's a, that's a big question. A big, right now. It is a big question because it points to different political, uh, like it depends on one's own kind of political morality and what is the role of a political leader in uh, these moments of crisis where, and, and in terms of protecting safety of communities, et cetera. Um, so I think there is times in history where it's appropriate to take moral positions. And uh, I think that that has to be a starting point, even beyond the strategies, et cetera. Uh, bec- and so what is, if the, 
the moral position might mean that a politician no longer has influence in certain spaces or within um, segments of the society. But we know that there is no shortcut to this. So if we say, for example, I'm trying to keep everybody happy as much as possible, it continues to create an environment where um, the more the extreme forms, but even moderate, all harmful forms continue to grow. So we just know from the history of not just the Black experience, but the global experiences as far as um, the kinds of issues that we're talking about, which are human rights, um, that everybody has to make, come to a moral position, including politicians. And um, I remember when, um, and in irrelevant of everything else, and make that clear, because as that voice gets louder, that's what creates because what we're trying to, to do in the struggle is um, create more liberatory spaces across society. So whatever space, if you're able to enter whatever space you hold and, and take a moral position in support of um, the, the liberation and equity for all people, um, that, that has to be an absolute starting point, regardless of what comes later. I just remember when Dr. King said uh, longevity has its place, but I'm not worried about that right now. So he wasn't undermining the value of um, needing to be alive as a, a father of young children. Um, but he was quite clear on what was coming, that he had many roles and many responsibilities. But there has to come to a place where you say, I'm not worried about that right now, because as in our tradition, we say there's a prophetic witness that needs to be brought to bear. And without that truth, everything else we build is 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 not going to be sustainable against what we would identify as evil. Um, which anything that seeks to diminish the the um, the life, I believe in a good creator, so as as image bearers, um, and and to diminish the the um, the life and dignity of others is a is a form of evil. So how have the best leaders from our histories, from diverse traditions and all faith traditions, you'll find those leaders and political traditions. How have they spoken in moments such as this? I think that's where we could begin to get um, some guidance. No, that's uh, that's that's very helpful. Let me let me turn to another important actor, the media. How do you uh, see the media on on you know obviously the some of the the direct issues you're dealing with, but this idea of different perspectives, different different voices on on issues around racial justice. What how do how should the media be dealing with it? I would say in this, I would have a very similar response. Um, I think it's time for I think within even different fields of practice. I know I work a lot with fields of practice and practitioners. There are um, ethics that guide those practices. We've done some work with various ethical bodies, with media bodies. So just understanding that the media is not, can never be and never has been neutral. Um, it all media uh, functions towards a particular vision of society. So I think it's important for everybody to just be informed within this sphere of power um, and, and those so we we we're having equity based lenses to journalism. There's good work that's being done out there in Canada that media bodies can look at, and um, I think that in terms of spaces for dialogue and conversation, I think that's possible to create. Um, but I I would say that the moral position is important at this point, which might sacrifice what we tend to do love, which we believe that sometimes if you get everybody in the room that thinks differently, that 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 it's almost part of that, I guess, Western democratic 
you know, and I think that's a, it's a, it's a beautiful tool, but we have to know when we are overly dependent on, uh, on building um, dialogue. What is When is it appropriate to build dialogue when it is appropriate to build safety and support and still hope for dialogue, but to ensure that our priorities make sense based on so many indicators, including uh, the United Nations, um, some of the work that they do around uh, violence and genocide prevention. So I think all institutions have an opportunity to be aligned with evidence-informed practices. Uh, we, we, we're not, we might not be there yet, but just when you do see divisions around issues of human rights, it's always important to be rooted in best, best, best practices because we have the never again movement, except, like we've done a lot of work as, 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 as a global community on these pieces. So we don't have to start from scratch in this moment. Can I just, I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you seem to just indicate that the idea of, well, let's get, let's get everyone in the room and sort of sort this out. You're not necessarily a big fan of that in all cases. And look, I, 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 obviously we exclude, you know, a neo-Nazi organization or something, but you know, all the kind of mainstream perspectives, let's get them in the, in, in the same room. What's, what's your hesitation around that? I'm, I'm, I'm interested. I don't necessarily have a hesitation around it. It's just that, like, I believe it's a tool, this idea of pluralism and civic discourse, et cetera. It's a tool of governance, if you will. But I think it's important to use it well, you have to understand its limitations. So I think it can be misapplied when we believe we can um, use it when some, use it without putting as much emphasis or having done our own work in terms of our own moral positions. So I think when the, the work of um, defining what it is that we are going to seek to protect, as in, I mean, we as individuals or as institutions, or as people in power, that kind of discourse and that kind of approach can create a space that does what we were talking about, that king of, of, of not recognizing the urgency of the moment and the impact of that on the lives that are most marginalized. So it's not um, it's not a just practice. I think there's just so many traditions that speak to that. I even think of the diverse faith traditions. It's a tension, if you will. You know, I think of in, I'm in the Yeshua tradition. So I think of when Yeshua says, on one hand, I am the peace, you know, who has broken down every barrier, and then he also says, do not assume that I have come to bring peace. Um, you know, I've 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 I'm come to bring a sword. Will turn father against mother. What they're saying is that there comes to be some issues where what is necessary is to facilitate that process of conflict because the values are more important than maintaining what we would call an unjust peace. Or So I think it's about those who do that work, and I think you're in that tradition of uh, creating spaces for dialogue and civic conversation, et cetera. I, I do believe that that's important work, but it has also been harmful work in the past. So it's like, what does it mean to develop best practices that are rooted in violence pre prevention and genocide prevention in our efforts to create spaces of, of dialogue and discourse. And you've led right to the, the naturally to our, our final topic, which is the role of faith and faith communities. And, and you know, you uh, uh, have touched on that. Do you, do you want to give a, and you've touched on it a number of times during our conversation. Do you want to give your perspective on what the role of, of, of faith and faith communities can play and, 
in dealing with these divisions. And listen, I'm the first to admit that that faith and faith communities have been the source of division and the source of oppression. I mean, that, that goes without question. But what's their their role today? Well, they've been both, right? I think we've had um, faith, um, spirituality practices co-opted in such a way that, uh, you know, produce harm. Uh, we also have within traditions, um, you know, examples of really strong liberation work. So I really enjoy, uh, so because I work within the black tradition, part of my work that I really love is looking at our black Buddhist examples, looking at black Christian, uh, examples and black examples in the messianic traditions, black Muslim examples, um, our indigenous faith and spiritualities. And within those, what, what is the history? What is the tradition of liberation work and practice? I think it's critical because faith and spirituality is part of our care to ourselves as um, human beings and uh, care for souls. Um, but also it's also a, a way in which people come to make sense of the world and their own values. So I think the engagement in faith communities is absolutely important and for there to just be awareness within each tradition and people have to do their work, I think. Um, I like, you know, when I speak to people in different traditions, for example, a lot of people are not aware of who's been doing that work in their own tradition, right? So th I think that's a good starting point because this work has been present across, across the globe and faith communities have played a critical role in all liberation movements one way or the other. <laughs> Well, Fannis, I want to thank you very much for joining us here on, on the moment, for providing a, a fascinating perspective based on, on your work and your lived experience and the role that you play in our community. So thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this edition of The Moment, a production of the Center for Public Ethics at Martin Luther University College, the founding institution of Wilfrid Laurier University, located in Waterloo, Ontario, Canada. Visit our website, publicethics.ca, for resources and more information on other podcasts. The technical producer of today's recording was Jackson Del Cero, with support from Alex Kinsella. Creative Commons music was provided by Jason Shaw on audionautics.com. You've been listening to the final episode in our six-part series on polarization. The moment we'll be taking a break for the summer, but look for our return this fall. Thanks for joining us.